Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. Maybe you do come to Christ, you know, with blind faith, but you don't have to. Look at the evidence. Some of the smartest people, the greatest intellects the world has ever known, they have looked into these things. You've heard of me say this before, but Sir Robert Anderson, he was a, a, an officer in the Scotland Yard, a very smart man, able to take details, specific details, and a brilliant mind, able to put these things together and know the veracity of whether something was true or not. He gets radically saved because he's thinking, I'm going to disprove the Bible. And in the process of doing it, or trying to do it, he gets wonderfully saved and writes some of the greatest books that we know. Today on Truth in Christ, Peter explains the trustworthiness of God's prophetic word. Welcome to our study for today. Pastor Rob finalizes chapter 1 of Peter's second epistle by analyzing the prophetic word of God. Peter's experience at the transfiguration of Jesus must have been amazing to him. But the testimony of God's word about Jesus was even more sure than Peter's personal experience. The fulfillment of the prophetic word confirmed is certain and reliable testimony of the truth of the scriptures. And now, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 19, and follow along with Pastor Rob. They can lock their jaw. They can lock onto it, and let me tell you, you're going to have to kill that dog sometimes to get his mouth off it when he's determined to hang on to it. You can pick him up. And hold him. And he'll just remain on there like a fish on a hook. We need to be that way with the word of God. Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, but we're eyewitness, we were inspectors, we were spectators, we saw this very thing. And that's why an eyewitness account in the court of law in our land is so important. It's the one thing that can send somebody to jail for a very long time. When there's one eyewitness, and you've got a jury saying, we, we agree that this person believes that what they saw, and we can't deny it. All the, all the things add up. That's where they were at that time, and they heard this, they saw this. And an eyewitness account is so important. And the Gospels were written by eyewitness accounts, not stories that were handed down through the ages, as some liberal scholars will tell you. No, they were eyewitness accounts. Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses. In Matthew chapter 17, let me just read it. You remember. It says, Now after six days, Peter, James, and John, his brother led him up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured, Jesus, before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Notice. That's God the Father saying, listen to my son. I've created him for this purpose. Hear him. 
And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And who was there with him on that Mount of Transfiguration? None other than Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. And they fell on their faces, but Jesus came and touched them and says, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. And Jesus giving them a foretaste of what was coming. But eyewitnesses. You can look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, Luke would say to this man called Theophilus, notice what he said. Just as those things were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They delivered them to us, and it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Again, eyewitnesses. And what does it say in Acts chapter 1? Luke being the author of uh, of the Gospel of Luke as well. He says, the former account, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all which Jesus began both to do and to preach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive, notice, after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Infallible proofs. Those are unmistakable proofs that were seen by the enemies of God and also the church. Even the Roman guards had to be paid to keep their mouth shut from what really happened. And they would also save their life in the process. Because they were supposed to be guarding that tomb, and that angel came down and opened that tomb, and those guys hit the, hit the bricks. And in that day and age, if you let your prisoner go, or if you weren't watching what you were supposed to be watching, you could be put to death. For he received, verse 17, from God the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we just read that in the Transfiguration account. And it also occurred at Jesus' baptism. It says in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, when he was being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, we know him, It says, when he had been baptized, verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, what? God the Father, showing his Son the reality of who his Son was. Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So I think God the Father is pretty well pleased with Jesus, his Son. Amen. Aren't you glad you know him? Aren't you glad that he loves you with an everlasting love, regardless of any wicked thing that you've done? I mean, there's nothing that you can do. Until you take your last breath, there is nothing so heinous that you can do to make God look at you and go, you know what, I've really had enough of you. Everyone else will do that, but God will say, you know what, I love you. Doesn't the Bible say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? I wouldn't do that for somebody who was, before my death, if they were still a wretch, I'd be like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody realizes what I've done or am doing for them. Just forget it, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go hang out at Lake Sacandaga up in the mountains. But no, <laughs> while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How great of a love is that? 
Greater love has no man than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. And didn't he call us friends? Think of the loving kindness of God. Whatever angry vision you have of God, let it be erased because it is wrong. It's wrong. Even in your most wildest, nasty sin that you've ever done, I don't care how bad it is, God can forgive you and he wants to forgive you. Will you allow him to come into your heart today and to change you wonderfully? Will you give it up? Will you give your heart to him completely, knowing that he was glad to take away those sins? And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's as if you've never done it. That's what justification is. It's just as if you never did it. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. Bear with me here just for a few more minutes, folks, because I'd really love to get through the rest of this chapter. But when we look at verse 19 now, through the end of the chapter, verse 21, we see now the written prophetic word. In 16 through 18, we saw the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Now we see the written prophetic word. Verse 19, and so, notice Peter says, we have... The prophetic word confirmed. All the stuff that I've heard before as a Jewish young man, Peter's saying, all the prophecies, all the prophets, all those things that I've learned from my youth, they were confirmed on that mountain when I saw Jesus in, you know, being transformed. Now I know that he is the Messiah. I know that there is a kingdom coming yet, and even yet future for us. It is coming, folks. It is coming He says, and we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. That's his instruction to the people that he was writing to, these Jews and Gentiles. And it's a word for us to do. You would do well to heed it, to listen to it, to pay attention as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation or origin. It's open. It's very clear. It's logical even. You know, some people talk about a blind faith. Let me tell you, maybe you do come to Christ, you know, with blind faith, but you don't have to. Look at the evidence. Some of the smartest people, the greatest intellects the world has ever known, they have looked into these things. You've heard of me say this before, but Sir Robert Anderson, he was a Uh, an officer in the Scotland Yard, a very smart man, able to take details, specific details, and a brilliant mind, able to put these things together and know the veracity of whether something was true or not. He gets radically saved because he's thinking, I'm going to disprove the Bible. And in the process of doing it, or trying to do it, he gets wonderfully saved and writes some of the greatest books that we know. What about C.S. Lewis? Another man who was very educated, Decides, trying to disprove Christianity, comes to Christ, looks at the evidence. You don't have to check your mind in at the door and leave all of your intellect. God says, no, come with all that I've given you and check it out for yourselves. Look at it all and look very carefully. Take your time. Take your time. Look at all the evidence. It's very clear. It's very clear. I've read so many things and I'm just so hook, line, and sinker convinced. Are you? You're going to need to be because there are forces that hate you because the devil cannot take your salvation away, but he can make your life a living problem. 
He can make your life difficult, but he can't take away your salvation. He can mess with you, but he can't take away what God has given to you. It's a promise. So don't ever think that just because you're going through something difficult that God has somehow turned his back. No. He'll never leave you nor forsake you even to the end of the age, which we are getting close to. God invites you. Check out the facts. Don't just believe in some guru on top of a mountain exploring his inner self and his empty mind. No, the facts are there. You can intelligently look at them and come to faith very simply. A child can do it. The gospel is not hard to, um, to understand. Verse 21, the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is called inspiration of the scripture. This is when God imparts knowledge to a man. And I don't quite understand it. And there's only a handful of people who can claim this. And God made sure that his word was preserved well for all of us to have copies of. No other document in the history of the world, folks, is like this that we hold. Did you know that even when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, as they began to look at those scriptures that were handwritten on parchment, and they were in jars in a very dry and arid place. I've been there. I've seen them. I mean, not the scrolls, well, in the Israel Museum. But I've seen the land. I've seen the cave that the scroll of Isaiah and other scrolls were there in the cave. And it was so dry and arid. It was the perfect place to preserve something for hundreds of years, for over a, th- a thousand years. The oldest manuscripts that we have now, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they realized that now they had, and they compared them, they were identical. And yet those scriptures that they found in the the Dead Sea predated in history the oldest thing that we had by a thousand years. That's incredible. Over a thousand years. And they were identical. Nothing lost in translation. (laughs) God knows what he's doing. But they were written down. Peter's saying, the prophecies in the Bible, they didn't come by the will of man, but holy men of God, notice, they spake as they were moved by the Spirit of God. So when did this happen? We can see that Jesus' birth was foretold. And let me just, I'm just going to bullet these to you, okay? You can write them down or you can listen to the podcast or get the CD or go on our website and listen to them again. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to hammer you with these scriptures. Isaiah 7.14, what did the prophets say about Jesus? Isaiah 7.14, his birth foretold 700 years before Christ was born. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, speaking to Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born. We have this on all of our Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. This baby is Mighty God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Are you kidding? This this is who this is? Yes. Equal with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. What about Micah 5 verse 2, prophesying again of Jesus' birth? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to rule in Israel. And Jesus will rule again. When we come back with him in Jesus' second coming, you, brothers and sisters, if you're a born-again believer, you are going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And it gets even better than that, but I'll... Save it. 
<laughs> for another time. But what about Jesus' crucifixion? Psalm 22. We're just going to look at verse 12 through 18. Many bulls have surrounded me. David speaking. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Notice, a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented, David by inspiration through the Spirit of God, says in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. That wasn't the Jewish way to do capital punishment. It was stoning. So he's saying, they pierced my hands and my feet. I, I can count all my bones. They look and they stare about at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. What about Isaiah 53? We know that very, very well. In verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. Whoever the suffering servant is that Isaiah is talking about, we know it's Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb going to slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened on his mouth. What about Jesus' resurrection? Psalm 16. Again, David, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. David knew that there was coming a resurrection. For you will not leave my soul in hell, or the grave, Sheol. You will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus was in the grave for three days. There was no corruption. He didn't start to decay yet. He was raised, for you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. What about his second coming? In 2 Samuel, chapter 23 and verse 2, Samuel or David says, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, the son, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Notice what he says The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. There's the inspiration again. And what did David speak about? We look at Psalm 2 and we can see him prophesying about not only Jesus' second coming, but the millennial reign. You can read it for yourself, but you remember how it starts. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings set themselves, uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And I love what it says in verse 6, God speaking, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. You can do whatever you want, governments of the earth, because when Jesus comes back, he's setting his foot on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. What about Zechariah, the prophet? Hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Behold, Zechariah 14, Behold, the day is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And let me just skip down to verse 3 for time's sake. I'm almost done there, folks. Thank you for hanging in there. But this is so, isn't this awesome? I'm just getting so jazzed. 
says in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, and as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, here it is, I love this, one of my favorite verses in the whole entire Old Testament. And in that day, his feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is there today, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and it's still there, by the way, been there. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a large valley, Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through the mountains, speaking of the Jews at that time. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? In one of my favorite verses in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back in his second coming, what does it say? Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Yes, a white horse. Seems kind of outdated since we have jets. Stuff like that. God doesn't care about those things. He who sat on him is called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head many crowns. He had a name written that no one except himself knew. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I, folks. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, he is a God of compassion. He's full of mercy. He's all those wonderful things. But that's if you're on his side. But if he's given you all this opportunity to come to him and you, at the end you say, you know what, I'm not going to give my heart to you. I don't care. I've learned evolution. We've evolved. We're just animals. I don't believe any of this. God will give you that choice. He will give you that choice. There are a lot of other scriptures. Speaking of Jesus' millennial reign, you can read Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Let me just read that one and then we're going to close up. Thank you for your patience. Psalm 24, verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The answer is this. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Verse 9, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, you, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? And the answer again is, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Amen? Amen. Be encouraged, folks, because we read the prophetic word. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It is all here for us. I read some of them to you. It's not a bunch of fables. They're eyewitness accounts, and they're accounts that God had given. And He puts His... There's another verse in Psalms that says, I have put my word above all my name. It's one of my favorite verses too. He's put his word. Not only Jesus, but he's also putting his prophetic word above all his name. And if that's not good enough, oh my, it's good enough for me. <laughs> Is it good enough for you? Know that God loves you, folks. And be encouraged, but draw close to him and let him take control of your life again. Get on your knees again. Pray. Get into the word of God. Be encouraged. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. Lord, encourage all of us as we go from this place. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.
I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in Peter's second epistle. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. And that number again is 585-586-3140. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, ministry and contact information, our location and service times, and much more. You can even download the radio and sanctuary messages in MP3 format free of charge from the resources link. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester Sanctuary Messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play or Apple Podcast. We are so glad that you could join us today, and if there is any way that we could bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.